Hello, everyone. This is Pam, the Cafe con Pam, the bilingual podcast that features Latine and people of the global majority who break barriers, change lives, and make this world a better place. Welcome to episode 303 of Cafe con Pam. Today, we have a conversation with Fidel Martinez. Fidel is the editorial director for Latino Initiatives at the Los Angeles Times. He also writes The Latinx Files, a weekly newsletter that focuses on the American Latinx experience. He started at the Times in 2019 as an audience engagement editor, focusing on sports. Previously, he worked as politics editor for MeToo, as a social storytelling producer for Fusion Media Group, and a content creator and managing editor for Break Media. He's a proud Tejano who will fight anyone who disparages flour tortillas. <laughs> Listeners, this episode with Fidel, actually he had been on my list for a long, long time. When I first learned about Latinx Files, the newsletter that he writes every week, I of course signed up for it and I really enjoyed the content and the approach of all of the different topics that he talks about. And I thought that would be cool to have a conversation with him. And, you know, it's one of those things that you were like, when it happens, when I get the chance. And talking internally with the team, we have meetings where we decide who's going to be next on the show because we have grown Cafe Compam to a point where now people want to be a part of this, which is really cool. And we have the privilege to kind of like pick and choose, I guess, so we can decide who would be the best person for you to listen to and the best story. And one time I was like, well, why not, Fidel? Why not? And we reached out and he said, yes. Y pues miren, aquí estamos. I share that because many times when I have been invited to other people's podcasts, they often tell me, you know, you've been on my list and I was just waiting for me to have X number of episodes or I was kind of like hesitant to reach out because I didn't know what you were going to say. And I'm on the same place. I have guests and I'm like, they're going to say no. So why even bother? And I will say, just reach out. I've learned to take the no or take the ignored message or take the silence in a much more easier way than I would rather receive a decline or an ignored message or silence instead of wonder and wait when X thing happens. I had a lot of fun talking to Fidel. I really didn't think he was going to come on the show. And here it is. Y bueno, cinemas, here's my conversation with Fidel Martínez. Fidel, welcome to Café con Pam. Thank you for having me. It's truly a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for being here. So the question that I always ask is, what is your heritage? I am Mexican-American. I was born in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, but both of my parents were born in Mexico. Have you been to Mexico? Yes, I grew up right along the border, so I, I spent a lot of time going back and forth. And I've also, you know, lived a little bit in Oaxaca and, and in Tijuana for a little bit. How did that happen? Well, it was one of those pandemic things. You know, it sort of happened to be that my roommate, you know, at the early onset of the pandemic, our lease ran up and he found a, a place for himself. And so rather than looking for a roommate in the midst of a global pandemic, I just figured I would work remotely from, from Oaxaca. ¿Y por qué Oaxaca? Just because I feel like that state and that city occupies a very mythical place in the imaginations of Mexicans, you know, and, and I feel it was an opportunity to really get to know it, you know, just beyond just flying there for a week and then spending time there. You know, I really wanted to get to know the city and the place from, you know, as much as possible. How was it? Truly transformational. I feel like it was very eye-opening. It made me realize a lot of things. About myself, for example, it made me realize that, you know, as much as I, I like to put the Mexican and Mexican-American first, you know, that part of my identity kind of vanishes, you know, when you're in Mexico. I mean, we like to think of ourselves as, oh, we're, we're actually Mexican, but down there, I'm like, no, you're 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 American. <laughs> and I think it was, it was a very important lesson, right? Because it made me really think about identity and place and, you know, what that means for, you know, as someone who's a member of a, a diaspora. I love this. But let's go back to the past a little bit, and then we'll go back. I mean, this is kind of like 
pandemic times or beginning of pandemic, but let's go a little bit further. So you grew up in Texas in a border town. How often did you cross? Pretty regularly. I mean, I have family on both sides of the border. And now that I that I have a chance to go back as an adult, I don't cross over as much as I'd like to. Part of it is just a pain to sit two hours, you know, waiting to cross over, right? So like, it's just so time consuming. And, you know, I'll admit that part of the deterrent is also some of the violence, right? I, I feel like this whole incident that happened in Matamoros, that's oh my gosh, basically the region where I grew up. I'd be lying if I said that it wasn't dangerous from time to time, or there wasn't a sense of danger looming in the air, but it's also in a home. So I have family on both sides, and I do try to go as often as I can. And how do you feel, especially with what recently happened in Matamoros, you being someone who grew up there, who has family on both sides of the border, how does that feel for you to see or read or have you written a story on it? No, I mean, I, I, I definitely wrote about it. It's a lot of feelings, right? And, you know, one thing that I wish I had addressed more is I wish I had uh, talked more about how the area is being presented. You know, it's it's been described as lawless and dangerous, which, again, those are true things. But you're also talking about an area in which millions of people, you know, are able to carve out a life of their own, right? And it makes me feel some kind of way, to be honest. And it also makes me very sad, you know, because... One of the takeaways from this incident is that it was a painful reminder for Mexicans that even in their own country, the lives of Americans mean more. Obviously, the manner in which these four individuals were searched for, you know, in Mexico, more than there's 110,000 people disappeared. And the same level of resources and the same level of urgency isn't apparent for, for the people who live there. I grew up in Mexico City. And Yesterday, I had a conversation with someone who grew up in the U.S. This person is a first generation. <laughs> they are now living in South America. And they said, why are you still in the U.S.? And so it stomped me, her question, because I was like, well, safety, maybe? Question mark. And then with your answer, it makes me think, like, are we ever safe in whichever side of the border? Right. I mean, we, we live in America where gun violence is very much a daily reality. But obviously, I don't know, I think we like to pretend that the bad things don't happen. <laughs> you know, we, I mean, it's no other way of putting it. My hesitance or, or the, the sort of confused feelings that I have is, you know, it, it further paints Mexico and by extension Mexicans as being a certain type of way, right? And Obviously, that might not be the intent of these stories, but the language in which that they use, you know, that's that's what's being communicated, right? And and I, I feel very privileged to be in a situation, you know, working at an outlet that allows me to sort of present another side of you, right? I feel like the work that we do is, is sort of like as a recognition that, you know, Latinos have sort of largely been excluded from the stories that are told, even though we constitute a large portion of the population, not just in places like California and Texas, but nationwide. And those narratives have been excluded from, from the mainstream, right? So I, I feel very privileged that in my current job, I, I have the opportunity to sort of like work towards rectifying that. Totally. So you grew up in a border town. And then what happened? How did you decide to study what you studied? How did that work? As I mentioned, I grew up in the Rio Grande Valley, basically my entire childhood. And I'll be honest, I kind of wanted to leave. You know, I felt like it was a very, very small place. And I just kind of felt like I wanted to see the world, right? And, and in fact, when it came to apply to colleges, I applied as, as far as possible. You know, the first college I applied to was Bowdoin in Maine, because it was geographically pretty far from South Texas, right? But I ended up actually being very fortunate. I was admitted to Yale University. And uh, it was a culture shock, you know, and I feel like that was kind of a a very eye-opening experience because it kind of, you know, like I was used to being the smartest kid in the room and here I was in this, you know, institution that has a lot of like renown. It's the only time I've ever really felt imposter syndrome, you know? And so, yeah, very formative period in my life. I uh, was forced to take a leave of absence in between my college years because I was basically failing out, you know? So I took a mental health leave of absence and that sort of helped me put things into perspective. And, you know, when I got back, I just sort of felt like my main goal 
my the only reason for being alive was to get over this college, you know, career and graduate and just figure out afterwards. After that, I, I graduated and then I moved to Austin, Texas to be closer to home. So hold on, we're going to unpack all the things that you said, because you said a lot. <laughs> <laughs> How was university in your horizon? Because being from a border town, is it that there's this expectation that people are born there, you stay there, you hang out there, you know, you do the expected labor. Yes, you wanted to leave the whole time. And how did you say, well, it's college, what's going to get me out of here? I'm going to keep using this word a lot. And, and I think it's really true. Um, I was very fortunate. My mom, she only completed second grade in Mexico before she had to work. And she's also, I think, the smartest person I know. And my dad, you know, he graduated from high school, but that's about it. You know, so I was the first, I'm the oldest of three. So I was the first to, you know, graduate from high school and go to college. My parents struggled a lot, right? They, they, they struggled to basically put food on the table. You know, they took care of us. But one of the things that my dad was very big on was education being a key to a better life, you know? And, and I think I was also very fortunate that growing up, I was put into the gifted and talented program in my school system. And that sort of, you know, gave me more opportunities than the rest of my classmates had, right? So I, I again, I, I keep going back to the word fortunate because there were a lot of people early on invested in, in me succeeding, including my parents and teachers, right? So yeah, and, and I feel like that was, uh, like it wasn't, for me, it wasn't a matter of whether should I go to college or not, but rather as to like, where would I want to go to college? And, and I feel like I was very lucky to have that support, you know, despite not having the you know, the economic means that most of my college classmates had. But I felt like that was very critical for me to not think of myself as like having limitations. For sure. So much to unpack there too. Because you mentioned that you're the oldest of three. I'm the oldest of three. Oh, so you know. <laughs> I know. Did you carry or do you still carry that responsibility of being the ejemplo or being like, pues mira, they're, they're watching what you be doing. <laughs> You know, honestly, no. I mean, it kind of, it sort of was, right? Be a little bit because, you know, my siblings and I were each separated by two years. So my younger brother, the middle child, he's two years younger than me. And my sister is four years younger than me. So we were kind of within the same age group, right? I think inadvertently, like I, my brother and I have always, it's always been a, a source of tension between the two of us. You know, the fact that we're so close to each other and we shared a room and, you know, siblings tend to be, you know, competitive, but... I feel like my parents were just sort of very big on be your own person and, you know, like, and, and I feel like my sister and my brother have very, you know, great fulfilling lives and, you know, and I feel like we're all allowed to be ourselves, which I recognize is a rarity among Mexican-American families, but we're very lucky, you know. How do you think you, your parents perhaps got to that place to where they were like, you know, you're not responsible for what your siblings do or do not do as being the oldest. Or do you think it's because you're a man? No, I think it's because they both have a lot of siblings themselves. You know, uh, my mom is like one of 11 and my dad is like one of five, you know, so it's kind of a, you know, I'm sure it's something that they've experienced themselves. I'm sure you have fun parties. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> parties that start great and then like someone offends someone and then they don't talk to each other for a few months. And then the next time they see each other, they pretend nothing ever happened. For sure. Okay, you decide to go to college. You land in Yale. <laughs> Out of all of them. Fidel Martinez, how does that land in this huge Ivy League? Do you think the people that were there also had a culture shock to see you? Someone like you? I don't think so. I mean, I, I was such a minority. There were so very few of us that, I don't know, we could just blend in. Not blend in, but I don't know. I, I, I didn't really experience any like discrimination or sort of like... You know, like I was never really made to feel like an outsider. I think the, the whole notion of like the imposter syndrome kind of came from, you know, the the institution itself. Right. But I feel like I'm, I'm much closer to my college friends than I am to my the people that I grew up with. Right. I don't know. I, I feel like one of the things that would be fair to say about me is that I'm pretty gregarious and I'm very good at adapting and fitting in with people, you know. I felt in with a good group of people at Yale and never really felt like an outsider in that regard. I think it was just the place itself and how hard the coursework was, you know, so that really gave me that that feeling of imposter syndrome. But I, I have nothing but wonderful things to say about my social life at, you know, during my college experience. 
So was it the expectation, perhaps, that the institution had on students more so than the humans that were in there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Like, I, I realized that I needed to be more disciplined. I mean, you know, having grown up in the school system that I did, I didn't really have to try, you know, I basically just kind of coasted through it. And, you know, that went so when it came time to go to a place like Yale, I wasn't prepared to actually do the work, you know, just because I had coasted through much of my high school experience, you know. Mm -hmm. How did you determine or who determined to send you to a leave? Um, it was a conversation I had with my dean. You know, I, I think he sort of noticed that I was struggling. And, you know, we talked and You know, we, we both basically decided that taking a year off and then sort of trying to, you know, process the first two years and how much I struggled with it, you know, there was an opportunity to, to come back, right? So that sort of allowed for me to take this leave seriously and just, you know, work on my own, on my own stuff, you know, and, and come back much more prepared and ready to actually do the work. What did you say to your parents when this happened? I mean, I felt like a failure, right? Because there was always this assumption that I was headed towards a path of success. Like I was clearly depressed and, and to my parents' credit, you know, like they kind of realized like, oh, maybe he should see a therapist. You know, it, it sort of forced a conversation of therapy and it, it sort of demystified it a little bit. You know, I think my parents sort of recognized that like, oh, maybe we're not equipped to be helpful entirely. So maybe he needs professional help. And I started seeing a therapist and that sort of was very instrumental in, in me getting my life back together. That's awesome. And you did this back home? So you traveled back? Yeah, I went. I, I moved back to, to South Texas. And how did you know you were ready to come back to school? Because I had spent a year working and I realized that this is not the life that I wanted for me. And I know that I, I would much rather be back at school. Nice. Great awareness. Great awareness. And so this time when you came back, how was your imposter syndrome? And now that you had worked on your mental health, did you notice a difference? I mean, obviously you finished, but... Yeah, I mean, I think it was... Uh, it really helped me put into perspective the things that were most important to me, right? And priority number one was graduating. So since that was my priority, my, my brain didn't really have much room else to account for like doubt. I didn't have time to, you know, like, oh, what, do I really belong here or not? You know, because I was already, I had already like been sort of kicked out, you know, and I had been given this opportunity to come back. So I didn't have time to waste or sort of let those feelings of doubt creep in. I was either going to get it done or not, you know. And how did you decide on your major? My major was actually a, a happy coincidence. So I graduated with an American Studies degree. My intention originally was to be a history major because the plan was, you know, to, you know, I don't know if this is true for every immigrant family, but it, it's enough of a trope that I feel comfortable in saying that, you know, immigrant parents are like this. But the expectation is to become a, a, a doctor, an engineer or a lawyer, mm -hmm. right? And I was terrible at math. So that that crossed out engineer and doctor. So the expectation was for me to go to college and then go to law school and then maybe like take it from there, you know, maybe enter into politics or whatever. So I was a history major. I, I, I took a lot of history classes and it's a subject that interests me and lends itself well to, to apply to law school. But I also found myself taking a lot of cultural studies classes, specifically film studies classes. It's a passion and interest of mine. And by the time I was senior my early on my dean called me into his office and told me that i couldn't graduate with a history degree or with a film degree because i didn't have enough credits for either and this is after coming back right and and trying to figure out what i was going to do and then i was feeling kind of lost about where my future was headed and then he casually mentions like oh by the way luckily for you a lot of the courses that you took are cross-listed with american studies So you have enough credits to be an American studies major, which kind of felt like he should have led with that, you know? Right, right. <laughs> it was actually the perfect major for me because American studies major, it sounds very vague and it's because it is, right? It, it's kind of what you make of it. It's it's a interdisciplinary major where you, you borrow and take from different disciplines to sort of like think critically about a specific thing, right? So obviously the thing that, that I cared about was film and history. So my specific interest in American studies related to the way in which film plays into history and vice versa. So that's how I ended up with an American studies degree, which to be honest, is, uh, 
in my career as a journalist, I feel has really, really helped me because one of the things you learn in that major is how to make an argument, you know, and back your argument with research. And that's basically what journalism is. Who are your champions in college that you want to give a shout out to? Obviously my parents, but to to a certain extent because, you know, they were in South Texas and, you know, obviously it, it was a different world that they are familiar with. But I'd say a lot of my close friends, you know, I, I definitely feel that there was a moment, especially towards the end when I had so much work and, and, and what have you, where my friends kind of like took turns checking in on me, making sure I was progressing and was not giving up. So I'd say my my immediate group of friends in college were, were definitely my champions during this period. I love that. How fun. And you're still friends with them, you said? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. So you graduate and then you move back to Texas after you were running away from it. <laughs> Right. Well, I did move back, but I moved back to Austin, Texas, which felt like a nice little compromise. It's hard to explain. I have a love-hate relationship with Austin. Like, I love living there. I felt it was a perfect place when I lived there because, you know, I described it as being a city in which it's like adulthood with training wheels. You know, when I lived there, it was pretty affordable to live there. You didn't really have to make a lot of money to be able to survive and, you know, have a little extra cash to go out and have fun with your friends, right? But the reason I moved there was because, you know, after college, after I graduated, I wanted to get back to the plan, which was to go to law school. So I moved to Austin with the intention of studying and taking the LSATs and then applying to law school at the University of Texas. What happened? Well, I got a job at a corporate real estate law firm you know, as a file clerk. And in my time there, I sort of realized that there were two types of lawyers in that office, those that really hated their jobs and, you know, kind of had a lot of issues. And those were the people that I liked because they were nice people. And then there were those people that really loved their jobs and it was their whole identity. And there were people that I just would not ever want to be, right? And I sort of saw these two roads as like being my options. And I decided that I didn't want either of them. So I just kind of abandon that plan altogether. Wow. It's almost like seeing the the potential options, you were like, I choose neither. And so where did you go after? I kind of bounced around. I, I took a lot of uh, jobs, odd jobs here and there doing data entry. Again, like I said, Austin was the perfect place for this because it was adulthood on wheels. I don't know. I, I, I did feel like kind of lost for, for a few years, but I then started trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I realized that I, I was always pretty decent at making an argument, you know, hence like trying to go to law school. So I just uh, figured like, oh, maybe I'll try writing. So I found this ad on Craigslist, I kid you not, for this blog that was looking to hire someone to write for a Latino-oriented, you know, sports site. Wow. Yeah. Talk about I, being specific. Yeah. So I applied and, you know, I, I got that job and like that was the first time I got paid to write, you know for a living. And then from there, I just kind of, you know, moved to another Latino oriented sports site, you know, because apparently ad, ad sales teams were realizing that there was a huge that we existed and they're trying to pitch all these editorial products for so that they could get those ad dollars. And then eventually, you know, I basically worked my way up to this company called Fusion, which was a joint venture between Univision and ABC News. It was one of those, like, I had just been writing about Latino culture for a few years that this joint venture, um, it was supposed to be a cable network and digital media company aimed at millennial Latinos. This was in, like, mid-2010s, right? And so I had, I had worked in long enough in this in this very niche aspect of media that I was able to, to get this job. And I feel there are a lot of things I could say about Fusion, which I won't because, you know, it's in the past. But one thing I will say is that it did provide a certain semblance of legitimacy for me. It was the place where I became like just a blogger to like a journalist, right? And... You know, it was interestingly enough, like the first time where my parents felt like, okay, well, we're not worried about you. You know, you deviated from the plan, but you seem to have stuff figured out. And, and the reason for that is because, like I said, it was a joint venture between ABC News and Univision. And one of the people that was working on, on Fusion was Jorge Ramos, right? The legendary Univision anchor, right? And they still didn't know what I 
did for money, but they were like, well, at least we know that Jorge Ramos is your colleague, so it could be worse. You know, so. <laughs> Jorge say, todo bien. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Okay, let's take a quick coffee break. Okay, Fidel, do you drink coffee? I do. I'm a French press guy just because, I don't know, I, I don't, I can't, I just like my coffee black, you know, and in large quantities, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, I do love coffee. I feel like it's the first thing that I gravitate towards when I wake up, you know, just because it makes me feel normal. Yeah. Do you have a morning ritual on like making your French press? Yeah, I usually put on music. I live in Los Angeles and we're very lucky because we have this this public radio station called KCRW and they have like a morning music show called Morning Becomes Eclectic. And it's great. I'll just put it on, you know, and it's it's usually a great source of music discovery for me. And I'll just make my coffee and then scroll through Twitter and then begin my day. Nice, nice. And do you have a favorite coffee shop in local coffee shop in LA? Well, no, actually, the answer is no. When I lived in, in Oil Heights, and there was this place that I used to go to a lot, and then it shut down, you know, and, and I haven't oh, been able no. to find. Yeah, so, so now I just sort of buy coffee and make it at home. Sadly, where I live now, it's much more gentrified, and uh, there's a coffee shop close to me. You know, I won't name names, but it's pretty good, but it's also overpriced, and Let's stick to the French press. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Do you have a favorite type of coffee? I like the medium roast. I mean, most of the coffee that I try to buy, like I try to get, you know, single origin coffee, you know, beans like, you know, that's so that's more on the, you know, a little pricier end, right? But it's not like a specific brand. Usually there is this coffee roaster from Mexico that I like called Café Estelar. Whenever I see them, you know, in in a store, I'll immediately snag one or two bags. Nice. Do you grind your beans or do you have them ground already? Oh, no, I, I have my own grinder. Nice. Like a, a true coffee drinker. Well yeah. done. <laughs> yeah, I'm not messing around. Coffee is life. So Coffee is life indeed. Awesome. Well, on my end, I am drinking Wonderground coffee, which is mushroom coffee. And today I poured myself a cup of their reishi and chaga coffee, which is to chill my anxiety. <laughs> so it's still coffee, but it has mushrooms that help you stay calm. I used to be a, a black coffee drinker, but my mom introduced me to powdered milk. And listeners know that I have now this thing for powdered milk in my coffee, and it's really strange, but Anyway, <laughs> so let's get back to the show. Hola, Vanis. By the way, if you are enjoying this conversation and you want to keep talking about it, if you have some comments and maybe some questions that you have, follow me on social media and let's keep that conversation going. This is your reminder to screenshot and tag me at Cafe Compan Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. And let's keep talking about it. Tell me what's resonating. Tell me what isn't. Tell me what do you wish I asked the guest. This is your chance. And if you're on TikTok, I'm at Cafe Compan Pod as well. Let's stay connected. Okay, Fidel. So you kind of start moving around in this journalism space, media space. Do you love it? Is this where you're like, okay, this is my thing. That's what I'm going to do. I mean, it definitely made me realize that I enjoyed telling stories, you know, and, and I feel like this industry was kind of like the right avenue to explore that, right? So yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I found myself, you know, obviously working at Fusion and, and these other blogs prior to that, I sort of realized that the specific subset of journalism that I was most interested in was, you know, telling, you know, Latinx stories, Latino stories, right? And, and I feel like a lot of that has to do with the fact that I grew up in a very predominantly Mexican-American community. And yet, whenever I would see the area in the news, you know, it wasn't us telling our stories, right? And, mm -hmm. and so, to me, it became very important to be able to tell the stories, you know, and to sort of figure out a way to amplify, you know, the, the Latino and, you know, and, and better cover the Latino experience. Right. I mean, we're talking about a group that is 60 million plus people in the United States, you know, and there is no singular Latino experience. And so 
for me, it always felt like it was there's ample ground here to truly explore what being Latino in America is all about, you know, and that sort of has had like became kind of my guiding light, you know, for lack of a better term. And that's kind of been, you know, that, that that's always been a factor into like where my career has progressed. I love that you share that there's not one singular Latino experience. Have you ever been questioned about anything that you've ever written? Like, well, that's how you feel, but that's not how I feel by someone who may have a different experience. I don't, I wouldn't say questioned. There are some things, obviously, you know, I have a, this inside joke with a friend of mine that, you know, that every Mexican's favorite game is, is the Mexican card game, which is, you know, if you see another Mexican, immediately you try to like out Mexican that person. Right. So you start, you know, like, oh, well, I grew up so and so. I was like, oh, yeah, well, I speak Spanish. She's like, oh, yeah, well, blah, 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 blah. You know, we've thought about turning it into like a sketch, you know, where it's like a fake commercial for an actual Mexican card game. And then the joke is that the game never ends and it stops being fun, <laughs> you know? So I, I definitely have had people like question my Latinidad or my Mexicanness. One specific aspect of that is, you know, I use the term Latinx, right? And and it's it's in the name of my newsletter. And there's obviously a, a strong pushback from there, right? Which is fine. People are allowed to feel however they want. You know, my personal view is, you know, maybe if you're sense of identity is threatened by the existence of one letter, then maybe that foundation isn't as concrete as you think it is. That's just my view on it. Uh, but no, I mean, I feel like when we created the newsletter, we, we did so with the mindset of, I can only speak to my experience. And my hope is that, you know, this resonates with other people. Like we never set out to be like, this is how it is for all Latinos and I'm the expert and no one knows about Latinidad more than me, which is obviously dumb and stupid and not true, right? Like, like I said, 60 million people shaped by, you know, different countries of origin, different locations where they end up, you know, different circumstances, race and class. And there's so many different factors about Latinidad that, you know, there is no singular Latino experience. You know, anyone who believes that is... I mean, oof, I feel bad for them, you know? Some marketers do. <laughs> it's interesting, right? Because one of the things that I've often asked myself is like, well, does Latinidad even exist, right? Because there, there's definitely an argument to be made that, you know, Latinidad doesn't benefit all Latinos. It only benefits certain Latinos, right? And, and that sort of has a lot to do with race and class, right? I, I feel like, you know, our... You know, Afro-Latino brothers and sisters, you know, can probably attest to the fact that, you know, Latinidad has not served them and in fact, like has led to many of them rejecting it, right? So, and it's something that I think these topics are worth exploring, right? But I think when it comes to, there are a lot of capitalistic ent entities that benefit from the concept of Latinos existing, right? Like that, if it weren't for like the concept of Latinos and like networks like Telemundo or Univision wouldn't exist, right? It's something that a lot of people are continuously exploring. And one thing that I talk about often is how, because I grew up there, <laughs> I grew up in Mexico. And so what happened to me is that when I came to this country, I became a Latina. I had to check the box of Hispanic in my college application, you know, and I didn't know what that meant. There's this constant exploration of who are we and does it matter? And who actually benefits from knowing this? Right, exactly. Tell me about the newsletter, Latinx Files. How did that come about? So I came into the LA Times in 2017 unofficially as a freelancer slash contract worker. And then officially in, in October of 2018. And I started working for the LA Times under the audience engagement team, working specifically with the sports desk. What led to this is prior to joining the LA Times, I had moved to LA, you know, I was based in Miami working for Fusion, and then I kind of wanted to leave because it felt like the project wasn't going anywhere. So I just, you know, needed a change of scenery. So I got a job working for a media company based here in Los Angeles called Mitu, and I was hired to be their politics editor. Okay. This was during the 2016 presidential election cycle. It was a fun experience, but... It wasn't what I wanted to be doing, and uh, I was kind of basically fired for it, you know, because I kind of realized that 
I like to say that we mutually parted ways, but it was a decision that was brought upon by not me, you know, <laughs> but again, it was fine. I was burned out. I needed a, a change of face. And then I sort of just freelanced for a while. I walked dogs, you know, it was, it was actually a lot of fun because I was exercising and I was still writing and, uh, you know, even though I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, I knew that at the very least I could always rely on myself to pay my bills. It was another moment of like reflection for me right like it made me realize well do i really want to do this or should i just go into like advertising or you know pr or whatever whatever industry journalists go into once they decide that journalism is no longer feasible or sustainable for them right and i sort of realized like no i i really enjoy writing and doing these things but i don't know if i want to go back on you know focusing on latinos i'm a little burnt out especially because the 2016 election was very it was a lot. Let's just leave it at that. All right. Let's just, it was a lot. And I grew up loving sports. You know, it's, I always joke that it's my dad's only love language, sports. And so obviously I grew up sports so that I could connect with my dad. So it's, it's, it's always been something that I cared about a lot. Right. And so there was an opportunity at the LA Times to work for the sports desk because the audience team, which was small at the time, they didn't have anyone that was capable of working with the sports desk. So they brought me on. Right. And it was great. I truly enjoyed it. I was able to go to, you know, a World Series, a Super Bowl, you know, like a lot of like cool sporting events that I would not have been able to attend otherwise. Right. But during this whole time, you know, I kind of felt like, well, you know, we're in Los Angeles, like the city is half Latino. Why are we not doing a better job at telling Latino stories? Right. And so, you know, I originally proposed, uh, I wrote a three-page memo about originally a podcast, like the newsletter was going to be a podcast, you know, and I pitched it. And, and at the time, we had just hired a podcast person to be in charge of podcasts. And we discussed it and they loved the idea. But as I'm sure you're well aware, putting together a podcast takes a lot of resources, right? Mm-hmm. And they were resources that we didn't ne- necessarily have. And there were other projects that they wanted to prioritize, which very valid. You know, I understood. And so I just kind of like put the idea back into the back burner and I just continue with my job. Because again, I, I want to be clear, I, I loved my job working for the sports desk, you know, but it kept nagging at me. And then, you know, I retooled the pitch instead of a podcast. I was like, well, why not a newsletter? It requires very little resources comparatively. Significantly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know, like we're not taking any, any real estate from the print product. So, you know, I repitched it and, you know, the bosses liked it, but they didn't move on it. And then George Floyd got murdered. That forced a lot of internal conversations, not just in my newsroom, but across other newsrooms, right? About how ill-equipped we were or how much more of a room for improvement there was in terms of covering communities of color. Right. And so because of this, you know, the management sort of felt like, well, we really need to make concerted efforts to address this. Right. And lo and behold, like my newsletter memo, three page memo was already done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was, I just needed the green light and the catalyst. Right. And that's and that's what happened. I always bring this up because, you know, I keep going back to the word fortunate. And it feels very weird to say that, right, especially in the context of George Floyd's murder. But it required a lot of things to happen in order for me to be able to be in the situation. And a lot of that was occurrences that were out of my control, right? So I am very fortunate to be where I'm at. And it's not lost to me that it required, like, I, I got a lot of help along the way. I always bristle at people who are successful and they adopt a like, oh, I did this by myself. No one helped me. You know, like, okay. You know, so so again, I've considered myself to be very fortunate. For sure. No, and I love that you mentioned how, like literally that, because I'm a business coach outside of being a podcaster. And I always remind people that nobody's done it alone. Like the self-made thing is not real because it just couldn't. There's no human capable of doing all the things with finding all the resources. There's always other humans supporting. And so I love that you bring that up because I think it's important to call it out and give the credit to the people that support us. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that I try to do. I try to sort of pay it back, you know, and be supportive of of those coming up behind me, right? Because I feel like I've been very fortunate to benefit from the support of others that it's incumbent upon me to do the same. Totally. Totally. Never forget where you come from. I agree. And the other thing that I don't want to not 
name is to piggyback on what you shared about the murder of George Floyd and how it's a really unfortunate event. And on a parallel side of it, it catalyzed, it really set this fire into a lot of awareness, into a lot of conversations that came from that moment. And so it's really sad that we had to lose a life. I don't know. I feel like it's part of the history of the US of like, I saw a bumper sticker the other day and I'm like, oh my gosh. It said, guns, God, and guts have built the United States. I mean, definitely guns. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It like literally stopped me. I was thankfully in the passenger seat and I sat there and I was like, wow, but that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> right. So you have this awesome newsletter that I read. You know, it's really hard for me to write a newsletter. It's so much easier for me to podcast. So I love that you're like, yeah, it takes so much less resources. You're right. <laughs> and I don't know. I need to work on my on my newsletter discipline, I guess. <laughs> Might reach out for some tips because. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, again, you know, not to sound like a broken record, but I do feel very privileged to be able to write this. You know, the pitch was, you know, Los Angeles is half Latino. Like, why are we not gearing, you know, creating products for for this audience, right? And so. I struggled the first few weeks after we launched because I sort of realized that I was writing in a way that really prioritized a white readership, right? Like writing for the white gaze. And it's something that, you know, you're sort of kind of trained to as a journalist, right? You know, and I kind of realized that I don't have to do that. You know, this is very much from the onset, a space about and for the Latino experience. So why not speak in a manner that is similar to what, you know, has been my Latino experience, right? The the newsletter is a lot more conversational than what you would find on the paper. You know, there's a lot of inside jokes that, you know, if you're not Latinx or Mexican-American, in some cases, you're not going to get. And that's okay, because those jokes aren't for you. And, you know, you can figure out what that inside joke is. You know, I'm not here to explain Latinos. I'm here to sort of have conversations about what, it, you know, the Latino experience, right? Like if, I, if I'm talking about, you know, someone like Ramon Ayala, I'm not going to go into like, he plays Conjunto, which Conjunto is a genre that, you know what I mean? Like, I don't need to do that, right? And, and it's very liberating to sort of like write it in the way in which feels natural. I think that's one of the things why people really like the newsletter. And also because, you know, prior to launching the newsletter, I was part of the audience engagement slash social media team where, you know, you, you learn how to build up audiences and communities, right? And so that previous job prepared me for this because from the onset, you know, because it was about the Latino experience, but because I was only one voice, you know, it made me think of, you know, how can I incorporate other voices in this newsletter in different shapes and forms, right? And so some of the things that we've done to do that is, you know, periodically, I'll do a segment called Meet Our Latinx Readers, you know, and I'll interview a newsletter reader, you know, wherever they may be. Or I'll, you know, profile a coworker and let them talk to the audience, you know, in their own words. And we've also, you know, launched a comic section at the end. You know, we commission comic strips and it has been some of our, one of my favorite things about the newsletter, right? Like getting to read all these comics and paying these like, you know, Latinx illustrators and, you know, artists for their work. We've had several guest writers you know, we've done a lot of, uh, you know, audience call outs. For example, we did for Valentine's Day, not this year, the year, I think it was the year before. You know how there's those uh, love song dedication shows where, where yes. you know, so we were like, you know, what, what if what if we recreated that in a newsletter, right? So what I did is I asked people on Twitter to, you know, if you wanted to include a, a dedication to someone to send me a tweet. And so I took that and like kind of wrote the newsletter as if it was a script for like a radio show. And then at the end, we had like a playlist of the songs that people dedicated. How fun. Yeah. So it's kind of nice. Like I'm very privileged that I get to sort of like create this little space and, you know, I don't really get much pushback on, on what it looks like or, or, or what takes place in it. You know, like, like I'm allowed this, this freedom of experimentation. How did you get to giving yourself that permission to not write for white approval? I mean, it was a newsletter, you know, I think it was something that I didn't really have to think about too much, right? Because 
there's a very traditional way of writing for journalism, right? And I kind of feel like, you know, like a lot of it felt like unnecessary when talking about Latino communities because, you know, there there is a shared base cultural language that we all have, right? Creating this newsletter specifically for a Latino audience, it made me think actively about the audience, right? And it made me realize like, well, this is just unnecessary for them. Like, why would I do this extra work for them when they don't even need it? So that was, it was kind of like a, like a Eureka moment. Like it was like, oh, wow, this is uh, something new, you know? Nice. How can we subscribe? Tell us all the links. LATimes.com slash Latinx files. One word. L-A-T-I-N-X-F-I-L-E-S. Nice. Facil. And if people want to find you, where are you the most active? I am only on Twitter. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the site being completely not usable so that I can be unshackled and free from social media and live a fulfilling life. (laughs) Nice. And so you're only on Twitter by choice. Yeah, yeah. I'm only on Twitter by choice. You know, Facebook, just it's not for me. And Instagram, I'm I'm a words guy. So I don't know. I feel like... Para que? Yeah, exactly. You know, so... So what's your Twitter handle? If you want people to find you. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, of course. My Twitter handle is at Fidmart85, F-I-D-M-A-R-T-8-5. Fidel, thank you so much for being at Cafe Con Pam. This was super fun. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was truly uh, fantastic. And uh, I didn't even realize how, how quickly time went by. You know, it, was, it was such a truly a delight. So thank you again for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. This was awesome. Listeners, stay shiny. Okay, listeners. So what do you think? We talked about so many things. And I think Fidel has very specific perspectives. And I think it's really being very clear on what your thoughts are on certain things. Definitely sets you apart from being neutral. And I feel like for me, I have very strong opinions and some things, but on others, I'm open to hearing the opposite side because why not? So it was really cool to to talk to Fidel and explore his story and how different pieces of his journey kind of like brought him to where he is now and how strong he stands in his power, which is really admirable. So I'm really curious for you to see what did it bring up when you were listening? What thoughts do you have? Another thing that I wonder now that I have or I'm having more and more conversations with people who are a little bit more public, or maybe their story is just a little bit more known. I wonder how, as you listen to their story on Café Con Pam, if it shifts your perspective on them. Because, I mean, I only know like 1% of this person's story when we think about public figures or politicians or anyone who's kind of like out there in the public eye, we only know a little bit of who they are. And so I wonder as I am having conversations with people who are more public, if you get to learn one more percent of what you knew before and if that shifts how you thought about them or if that shifts your perspective on them. My hope is that it does. So you're able to see these humans for their humanity. You, you're able to see that everyone in a way has had hardships and they've chosen to move through them in whichever way, many times in, in inspiring ways, where we can learn and use that part of the story that inspire us to water those seeds that we may be planting or we may be perhaps doubting just... That's the purpose of Cafe Compa, pero bueno, I don't want to ramble too much. Thank you so much for being here. If this is your first time, welcome to Cafe Compa. I hope you come back and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It helps so much for everyone, everyone who is new. It really supports us and it supports the stories that we are sharing here. Make sure to follow Cafe Compa on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, or whatever platform you use to stream your podcast and download the Latina Podcasters Network app. Listeners, I want to now give you the primicia right here. I hope you're still here because I want to talk about the retreat that I am planning. It's been 
a journey to plan this out. (laughs) And I want to tell you about it. So it's called Illuminate Retreat. And this is a transformative and intimate three-day, two-night experience that will support you to gain clarity and confidence in your purpose and vision. This event is happening in San Diego, California on August 17th through the 19th. It's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, because I want you to have Sunday to integrate. I want you to have Sunday to explore San Diego if you are coming from out of town. I want you to radically rest (laughs) that Sunday afterwards. This retreat is focused on dismantling the seven principles of Kaidita culture, which have kept many of us quiet, submissive, and unproductive. I believe it's time to unlearn the principles and step into our true power. Our power is within us. We just have to uncover it. So this retreat is the annual experience where Power Sisters embark on their journey towards clarity, confidence, and self-discovery. And I want to invite you. I want to invite you to come. We do have very limited spots because we are doing this in San Diego and it's a retreat location that has limited spots. So we only have 15 spots and we have some options for Power Sisters. Existing Power Sisters obviously will get first dibs on the spots. And then we have another option for those of you who have been thinking about Power Sisters but are kind of unsure. This is going to be your time to join us and you get the rest of Power Sisters for free. So learn more, head over to illuminateretreat.com, I-L-L-U-M-I-N-A-T-E, retreat.com, illuminateretreat.com. Maybe when you listen to this, you'll be able to add yourself to the waiting list. Maybe when you listen to this, you'll access already the page to secure your spot and you just have to pay a deposit. I have payment plans available. Let me know if you need something specific. I'm always open to find amicable ways to make it work for you. You want to listeners, if you're still here, thank you so, so much for tuning in, for lending me your ears. I said this every week, I think, but it really, it means a lot for you to share time with me. I'm honored. I really am. Follow me at Cafe Compan Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. At Cafe Compan Pod on the TikTok. I don't know what I'm doing there, but you know, hey, I know producer Nancy's going to be like, Pam, stop saying that. But I really don't, y'all. I'm Kobe Ukes on TikTok and I tap on there from time to time. Let me know if you want more tapping actually, because I respond a lot. Where's my human design people? <laughs> I need to receive the invite to respond, I guess, apparently. So let's hang out in the socials and join us on Discord, stayshining.club. It's a super fun place. And if you need another invite or you can't get through stayshining.club, because sometimes that link is weird, send me a DM. It's super fun. So come join us. I would love to have you. Y bueno, como siempre, espero que nunca se te olvide to stay shining. Sabrosura, pati, que, que.